0: This episode of the Ortho Bullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple-choice questions related to knee dislocations and multidirectional instability, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with knee dislocations, and the first question reads, A 30-year-old male patient involved in a hand gliding accident sustains a knee dislocation with multiligamentous knee injury and transection of his perineal nerve. He undergoes multiple reconstructive surgeries. Two years later, he continues to have a foot drop and dynamic tendon transfer is recommended. This treatment most commonly involves transferring a tendon from which native insertion point to which new insertion point. And the choices are 1. Plantar distal phalanges to the medial navicular. 2. Medial navicular to the dorsal lateral cuneiform. 3. Plantar first metatarsal to the dorsal lateral cuneiform. 4 fifth metatarsal base to the dorsal medial cuneiform, and five plantar distal phalanx of the hallux to the dorsal distal phalanx of the hallux. So dynamic tendon transfer to restore active dorsiflexion of the foot involves transferring the posterior tibial tendon insertion on the medial navicular to the dorsal lateral cuneiform. So the correct answer to this question is two, medial navicular to dorsal lateral cuneiform so common perineal nerve injuries following traumatic knee dislocations are common, with an incidence of 25-40%. to Common perineal nerve palsy is characterized by foot drop due to loss of ankle dorsiflexors with a steppage gait and eventual development of a supinated equinovarus foot secondary to the unopposed pole of the posterior tibial tendon. Non-surgical management involves use of an ankle-foot orthosis and physical therapy. Surgical options include acute primary repair, nerve grafting with either autologous sural nerve or nerve conduits and dynamic tendon transfer. The posterior tibial tendon is harvested from its insertion at the navicular, passed through the interosseous membrane, and anchored to the lateral cuneiform. The classic bridal procedure involves concomitant anastomosis of the posterior tibial tendon to the tibialis anterior and peroneus longus tendons. Garazzo et al. reported a case series of 62 patients with post-traumatic common perineal nerve palsy who underwent a one-stage procedure consisting of nerve repair and posterior tibialis tendon transfer. Nerve repair combined with posterior tibialis tendon transfer improved post-operative outcomes compared to nerve repair alone. At two-year follow-up, neural regeneration was demonstrated in 90% of patients, The authors hypothesize that poor outcomes following nerve repair alone are due to a force imbalance between the functioning flexors and paralyzed extensors, which is somewhat equalized by performing a posterior tibial tendon transfer at time of repair. Nial et al. reviewed 55 patients with traumatic knee dislocation and reported a 41% incidence of common perineal nerve injury exclusively associated with dislocations involving disruption of the posterior cruciate ligament and posterior lateral corner. Complete neurologic recovery was found in only 21% of patients. The best prognosis was found with lesions in continuity, less than 7 centimeters of nerve involvement, and short conduction block, and muscle activity on nerve conduction and EMG studies. Vegasio et al. described a dynamic tendon transfer technique for traumatic complete common peroneal nerve injury involving transfer of the posterior tibialis tendon to the tibialis anterior rerouted to a new origin at the lateral cuneiform to restore ankle dorsiflexion and flexor digitorum longus to the extensor digitorum longus and extensor hallucis longus to restore digit dorsiflexion. Rerouting the tibialis anterior towards the transferred posterior tibialis tendon ensures the posterior tibialis tendon harvest length is sufficient. This avoids excessive tensioning of the posterior tibialis tendon, which may limit tendon excursion and result in a static tenodesis rather than dynamic function, as well as the need for posterior tibialis tendon lengthening, which may decrease strength of the transfer. Moving on to the next question, A 25-year-old motorcyclist has a knee dislocation that is reduced by the trauma surgeon in the emergency department. Radiographs show no fracture and a reduced knee joint. What is the most appropriate initial step for evaluation of a potential arterial injury? And the choices are 1. Pulse oximeter measurement at the gray toe, 2. Angiography, 3. Measurement of the ankle brachial index or ABI, 4. Doppler ultrasound, and 5. Assessment of capillary refill in the nail beds so a high index of suspicion should exist for an arterial injury after any knee dislocation. Due to collateral circulation around the knee, pulses may still be present as well as normal capillary refill. Though angiography is the gold standard for assessment of both major and minor intimal injury to the arterial system, it is invasive and not always readily available. Assessment of the ABI can be done without specialized equipment and personnel. When the ABI, that is the systolic blood pressure distal to the injury over the systolic blood pressure of the uninjured upper extremity, is less than 0.9, consideration of invasive testing or surgical exploration is recommended. So again, the correct answer to this question is 3, measurement of the ankle brachial index or ABI. Moving on to the next question, a 24-year-old man reports the development of a foot drop following a knee dislocation one year ago. The common perineal nerve was found to be in continuity at the time of surgical reconstruction of the posterolateral corner of the knee joint. He would like to eliminate the need for an ankle foot orthosis. What is the best option to achieve elimination of the orthosis? And the choices are 1. Repeat neurolysis of the common perineal nerve at the knee level. 2. Repeat neurolysis of the common perineal nerve with cable grafting. 3. Extensor hallucis longus transfer to the distal first metatarsal. 4 anterior transfer of the tibialis posterior tendon through the interosseous membrane and 5 ankle fusion. So the ankle dorsiflexor muscles have been denervated for too long a period to expect reinnervation to be successful. Even if the extensor hallucis longus tendon was functional, it is unlikely to have sufficient strength to achieve dynamic ankle dorsiflexion. The tibialis posterior tendon transfer has been shown to predictably achieve these goals in a high percentage of patients. Successful ankle fusion is likely to fail with time due to the development of forefoot equinus. But the correct answer to this question is 4, anterior transfer of the tibialis posterior tendon through the interosseous membrane. Moving on to the next question, a football player who injured his right lower extremity during a game could not get up and reported extreme pain. The initial sideline evaluation showed a probable anterior cruciate posterior cruciate, and lateral collateral ligament rupture with a very unstable knee. He also reports pain in his ankle and is unable to dorsiflex the ankle. He has limited sensation over the dorsum of his foot. Examination reveals no swelling of the ankle and no pain with passive range of motion of the ankle. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Tibial nerve injury, 2. Associated ankle fracture, 3. Acute compartment syndrome, 4. Injury to the common perineal nerve, and 5. Rupture of the tibialis anterior tendon. So it is not uncommon to sustain a perineal nerve injury in association with a knee dislocation or multiligament injury. There should always be a high index of suspicion for this injury, and the vascular status to the leg should be carefully evaluated. From the history and examination, there is no indication that the ankle was fractured. A compartment syndrome will not develop within a few minutes of the injury. It takes several hours for a compartment syndrome to develop and become symptomatic. The tibial nerve supplies the plantar aspect of the foot. An acute rupture of the tibialis anterior tendon in a young person is very uncommon, and it is associated with pain and localized swelling about the ankle. It is also unlikely that it would lead to sensory loss. So the correct answer to this question is 4, injury to the common perineal nerve. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of multidirectional shoulder instability, the first question reads, what procedure can eliminate a sulcus sign? And the choices are 1. Rotator interval closure, 2. Slap repair, 3. Bankart repair, 4. Supraspinatus repair, and 5. Subacromial decompression. So a sulcus sign represents inferior subluxation of the shoulder. The elimination of this sign and correction of the inferior subluxation is best achieved through either an open or arthroscopic rotator interval closure. A slap repair stabilizes the biceps anchor but does not affect the sulcus sign. A Bankart repair which corrects anterior inferior laxity is not sufficient to eliminate a sulcus sign. Subacromial decompression and supraspinatus repairs have no effect on inferior subluxation. So the correct answer to this question is 1. A rotator interval closure can eliminate a sulcus sign. Moving on to the next question. A 17-year-old girl has multidirectional instability of the shoulder. What is the most appropriate initial management? And the choices are 1. Immobilization in a sling and swath, 2. Open capsular shift, 3. Arthroscopic capsular placation, 4. Thermal capsulorraphy; and 5. Physical therapy and home exercises. So multidirectional instability of the shoulder is defined as symptomatic instability in two or more directions, that is anterior, posterior, or inferior, but must include a component in two or more directions, that is anterior and or posterior, but must include a component of inferior stability as well. Initial treatment should always include physical therapy and instruction in a home exercise program that emphasizes periscapular and rotator cuff strengthening to improve the dynamic stability of the glenohumeral joint. Immobilization has not been shown to be effective. Open capsular shift and arthroscopic capsular placation remain the surgical options when appropriate non-surgical management fails, typically a minimum of 6 months of a dedicated physical therapy and home program. Thermal capsulorraphy remains controversial but is not recommended by many clinicians because of reported complications including recurrent instability, axillary nerve injury, chondrolysis, and capsular injury. So, again, the correct answer to this question of what is the most appropriate initial management for multidirectional instability of the shoulder in a 17 year old female is physical therapy and home exercises, making five the correct answer to this question. Moving on to the next question Which of the following statements regarding the use of thermal shrinkage during arthroscopic shoulder surgery is most accurate? And the choices are one the amount of shrinkage is fixed for a given peak temperature irrespective of the time of application. 2. Denatured capsular tissue does not undergo a healing response. 3. The capsule is typically found to be thick and fibrotic in revision cases following thermal shrinkage. 4. Patients with good results at one year are unlikely to develop recurrent instability in the future. And 5. High failure rates have been reported in its use for anterior, posterior, and multidirectional instability. So reports of clinical results at two- and five-year follow-up indicate much higher failure rates than traditional stabilization techniques for all common instability patterns. The degree of capsular shrinkage is dependent on the total amount of thermal energy delivered as well as the rate of delivery. Denatured tissue undergoes a healing response. The capsule typically encountered in revision cases is thin and patchless rather than thick and fibrotic. So the correct answer to this question is 5. With regards to thermal shrinkage during arthroscopic surgery, high failure rates have been reported in its use for anterior, posterior, and multidirectional instability. Moving on to the next question, a 25-year-old woman returns for her first postoperative visit after arthroscopic thermal capsulorraphy for recurrent multidirectional instability. Examination reveals that the portals are healed, there is no swelling, and passive range of motion is within the normal range. However, she is unable to actively raise her arm. Shoulder radiographs are normal. What is the most likely cause of these findings? And the choices are 1. Adhesive capsulitis, 2. Sling immobilization, 3. Thermal chondrolysis, 4. subacromial impingement, and 5. Axillary nerve injury. So treatment of shoulder instability with thermal devices has led to numerous complications including recurrent instability, chondrolysis, stiffness, and capsular necrosis. This patient's findings are consistent with a heat-induced axillary nerve injury. Normal radiographs exclude extensive chondrolysis. So the correct answer to this question is 5, axillary nerve injury. Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old lineman is referred to your office for a second opinion. One year ago, he underwent an arthroscopic procedure for shoulder instability. He complains of a persistent sense of instability despite the surgery. Which of the following is a contraindication to revision arthroscopic labral repair for recurrent anterior glenohumeral instability? And the choices are 1, glenoid bone loss of 10%, 2, capsular attenuation from prior thermal capsulorraphy; 3, anterior labral periosteal sleeve avulsion lesion, otherwise known as an ALPSA lesion, 4, glenoid labral articular defect, otherwise known as a GLAD lesion, and 5. Combined superior labrum from anterior to posterior tear, otherwise known as a slap tear, and a recurrent Bankart lesion. So capsular attenuation or post-thermal capsular necrosis from prior thermal capsulography is a contraindication to arthroscopic repair, making 2. Capsular attenuation from prior thermal capsulography the correct answer to this question. Thermal capsulorraphy utilizes heat generated by radiofrequency or laser ablation to cause capsular shrinkage in an effort to treat shoulder instability. However, high recurrence rates have been found, especially around two to three weeks after the index procedure when the capsular tissue is the weakest. In the setting of recurrence following thermal capsulorraphy, open revision is recommended. Creighton et al. reported on a series of 18 patients undergoing revision arthroscopic stabilization. Of the 18, 3 failed with recurrent instability, all with previous thermal capsulorraphy. Miniachi et al. reviewed the outcomes following thermal capsulorraphy, noting high rates of recurrent instability, especially in the setting of initial treatment for multidirectional instability. Park et al. reported on a series of 14 patients undergoing revision following thermal capsulorraphy. 10 out of 14 patients had signs of capsular thinning, insufficiency, and attenuation. Wong et al. surveyed 379 shoulder surgeons on the complications following thermal capsulorraphy. Capsular insufficiency and thinning were commonly associated with recurrent instability. Hecht et al. performed thermal capsulorraphy and biomechanical analysis of the capsule in a sheep model. The authors found that the capsule was weakest at the two to three week post-operative time point, leading to the highest rate of insufficiency, attenuation, and mechanical failure at this time. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is true regarding closure of the rotator interval in patients undergoing arthroscopic shoulder stabilization? And the choices are 1. It can lead to recurrent instability, 2. It restricts external rotation predominantly in the arm cocking phase of throwing, 3. It restricts combined flexion and cross-body adduction, 4. It restricts external rotation predominantly with the arm at 0 degrees of shoulder abduction, and 5. It restricts internal rotation predominantly with the arm at 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. So rotator interval closure involves plicating the anterior superior region of the capsule by suturing the superior and middle glenohumeral ligaments together. This has been advocated as a treatment for certain recurrent instability patterns, such as multidirectional instability. It was felt to address inferior subluxation in patients with a sulcus sign, however the greatest effect is a decrease in external rotation at the patient's side, that is 0 degrees of abduction. In general, a tighter anterior capsule tends to decrease external rotation most, and a tighter posterior capsule causes a decrease in internal rotation. The study by Gerber et al. performed selective capsular placations around the shoulder in cadavers and measured the resulting changes in motion. Anterosuperior capsular placation, the area where a rotator interval closure is performed, most markedly affected external rotation of the adducted arm, decreasing it by a mean of 30.1 degrees. The study by Plausinus measured the effects of different interval closure suture patterns in 12 cadavers and found the greatest decrease was in 10 degrees of external rotation compared to flexion. And the final question for this topic, an 18-year-old high school volleyball player is being treated for multi-directional instability of the right shoulder with the physical therapy program. She has intermittent pain and instability and episodic numbness and weakness in the ipsilateral hand. All the following are characteristic features of a generalized connective tissue disorder except, and the choices are 1, elbow hyperextension of the left arm, 2, left fifth finger passive extension beyond 90 degrees, 3, genu recurvatum of the bilateral knees, 4, excessive supination of the left forearm, and 5, abducted thumb to reach the ipsilateral forearm that is a thumb to forearm test of the right hand. So excessive supination of the left arm is not listed as part of the Baton 9-point scoring system for hypermobility. All of the other options are part of the scoring system, and a score of greater than 6 is associated with connective tissue disorders such as Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Excessive supination of the left forearm is not a characteristic feature of a generalized connective tissue disorder. The Level 5 review article by Schneck and Brems notes that generalized ligamentous laxity has been reported in 45% to 75% of patients who have undergone surgery for multidirectional shoulder instability. Patients with multidirectional instability have pathologic laxity of the glenohumeral joint in more than one direction with at least one of those being inferior. The onset of symptoms is frequently atraumatic and the chief complaint is often pain more than instability. Patients can experience concomitant recurrent, transient episodes of numbness, tingling, and weakness in the affected extremity. Most patients can be successfully treated non-operatively with a specific exercise program. If a six-month trial of non-operative management fails, then surgical intervention with an inferior capsular shift can be performed. That's all for this question review session about knee dislocation and multidirectional shoulder instability. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.